0: Welcome to Labor Law Radio. I'm your host, Michael Tracy, and here for another week of uh, Labor Law Talk. Okay, so what do we have this week? Uh, First of all, um, if you do have questions, www.laborlawradio.com and uh, toll-free, 888-678-7229. Now, there is a link on the uh, laborlawradio.com website to submit email questions. When you do submit questions, please Try to keep them a little bit brief. I mean, I know you want to explain your situation and everything, and that's fine. Uh, if it's facts that I need or, you know, something relevant to the case, certainly put them in there. But I don't need a six-page letter describing your life history and uh, your job history and what an evil person your boss is. That's not really uh, going to help me too much, and I, I don't have time to read those, and I don't have time to answer them. I certainly can't read them on the on the air for anybody else. So if you do want your questions answered, please keep them brief and uh, send them in to uh, the laborlawradio.com website. So, okay— First, a brief overview of what we have coming up for this week. The first thing we're going to talk about is a great case that just came down from California Court of Appeals. This is a computer programmer case, uh, Iker versus uh, Advanced Business Integrators Incorporated. A little bit of a technical case applies to a lot of people in the computer programming field, but very interesting, and and we'll talk about that. It also raises a bunch of issues about the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement and the Labor Board. So it's one of the segments I'm going to talk about exactly what the Labor Board is, what type of claims you can bring there, what the procedures are for bringing claims there, and why that might not be in your best interest to take your claims there and what your other options are if you choose not to. Then I'm going to get to uh, some of your questions. We got uh, you know a mix of stuff, and one of the questions is going to set up our, our segment on uh, sexual harassment. Uh, sexual harassment is a pretty big topic. I'm not going to try to cover it all in one uh, in one show, so we're kind of breaking it up. And uh, we had done some uh, wrongful termination stuff in previous broadcasts. Those are on the uh, the audio archives on the radio on the uh, laborlawradio.com website. Some people have having trouble finding them. They're off. Click on the audio archive section, and that's where the uh, audio archives are. So uh laborlawradio.com is where where those are but we're going to cover a little bit of sexual harassment here and some interesting cases that uh, were brought up by a uh, somebody who had emailed in a question And if we still have time after all that, I will get to the truck driver's exemption this week. I know I've talked about it a a bit in the past. It's a fairly complex thing, and a lot of it doesn't work well for a radio presentation. So more of the information will be on the website. But I've received a a number of questions from truck drivers, not so much truck drivers as it seems these are the employers of truck drivers, people employing truck drivers. And they're wondering whether they're complying with the laws because these laws are so complex and there's not a really good resource out there to find out – whether you're in compliance with them, and we'll get into why that is and what, uh, what the issues are there. So in any case, big topics today are going to be the uh, labor board and uh, sexual harassment. But first, let's talk about our uh, Iker case. Now, I characterize Iker as a tech case or a computer programmer case. It's a little bit different. I mean, if you're familiar, I mean, if you're a computer programmer, you're familiar with the case law in that area or what's been going on in that area, you pretty much know that as a computer programmer, you're entitled to overtime. There's been a number of big cases, especially in the video game industry. Electronic Arts and Activision and some of the other big names in the uh, the video game industry have all been sued for millions of dollars of unpaid overtime for uh, computer programmers. Those cases were particularly good because... In a lot of cases, the company was keeping track of all the hours for some type of internal costing system so they could, you know, allocate the uh, the people's salaries across various projects they were working on. So it very, we made it very easy to prove that they were working all types of uh, all types of hours. And the exemption status for computer programmers in California is very, very simple. I mean, if you spend most of your time writing computer code, chances are you're entitled to overtime, even if you're paid on a salary. All these people were paid on a salary, so doesn't uh, that's not really relevant If you are a computer programmer in California, uh, chances are you're entitled to overtime. Now California law for computer programmers is very, very different from federal law, which pretty much covers everywhere else in the nation. There's a couple other states that have special computer programmer exemptions that you know that are different or in some way similar to California but different from federal law. But uh, in California, the computer professional exemption, is the primary exemption that is used for computer programmers. And I'll talk about that briefly before we get into Iker because so many people get confused about uh, what the computer professional exemption is. But essentially, if you're working as some type of skilled computer programmer, and this you're, you're doing as your primary job function, I mean, there's a whole series of requirements that you have to meet in terms of a certain level of skill. You can't be a trainee. You can't be making basic web pages for websites or writing basic documentation for computer programs. That doesn't qualify. But if you are a skilled computer programmer, the main problem is, is that there's this hourly pay requirement. Now, prior to 2006, you had to be paid an actual hourly rate. And so if you're paid on a salary, it wouldn't qualify. 2006, the law was amended and you could be paid on a salary and it out to get your hourly rate. But the calculation for that is defined by law, and it says divide by the total number of hours that you work. So currently, for 2007, The hourly cap is $49.70 an hour. So if you make less than $49.70 an hour, you're automatically going to qualify or disqualify for the computer programmer uh, exemption. That is, you're going to get overtime. Now, if you make more than that, let's say, now salary-wise, that comes out to be $103,522 a year. So if you make more than $103, you might be exempt. And the reason I say might is because you have to divide by the total number of hours you work in a week. And this is why if you're a computer programmer and you're paid on a fixed salary, you're almost always going to go over that at some point because let's say in one week you worked 50 hours. Well, when you divide your payout, unless you're making $129,000 a year, that is going to be less than $49.77 For that one week that you worked, that means you lose the exemption and you're entitled to overtime for that entire week. You may even be entitled to overtime for the entire time you work there. That's an open issue of law. But in any way, for that week, you're going to be entitled to a substantial amount of overtime pay. So in general, I mean, you really have to be making a ton of money or just not really working any overtime in order to uh, uh, be exempt under the computer professional exemption. Now, that covers the vast majority of just, you know, heads down computer programmers, video game programmers, you know, just entry level programmers in, a, you know, at Oracle, Microsoft, things like that. But that's not what a lot of people in the tech field work as. You can call them, you know, different names, but essentially there's some type of consultant that is somebody who's doing something a little bit more than just heads down banging out code all day. And that's what the Eicher case decided, and that's why it's so important that this there was sort of this gray area for people who did, worked with computers but weren't just doing plain old coding. So in Eicher, now Eicher the name of the plaintiff. He's the employee who sued his employer, so that's why I refer to it as Eicher, uh, Eicher versus ABI, and uh, you know that's the employer. Now ABI was a basically software manufacturer, they made something called Mastermind, which was this uh, some type of payroll and scheduling system. It was used in the sports and entertainment industry to schedule staff, track payroll, uh, manage security, and uh, be a cost uh, tracking system. So ABI was primarily engaged in marketing and selling this product. And then once they sold it, they would send out their consultants in order to install it customize it, train the end user on it, and basically do all the tech things associated with it. Some of that's going to be computer programming. Some of it's just going to be installation configuration. Some of it's meeting with users, determining what their needs are. And a lot of that stuff is in this, was in this gray area of, is it exempt? Is it not exempt? Now that stuff is clearly not covered by the computer professional exemption. So You know this person is not. This isn't a question about uh, exemption under the computer professional exemption. This is a question of of being covered under the administrative exemption. Now, if you listened to the show before, uh, we hate the administrative exemption. It's the most nebulously defined. Uses terms that could mean anything depending on how you read it, and the employers love it because they keep trying to expand who can be uh, covered by the administrative exemption. And the fact that they try to get computer programmers and consultants, computer consultants covered under the administrative exemption um, surprises most people. When I talk to people in the tech industry, they always uh, conversation usually goes something like this. Well, you know, I'm clearly not covered as a a computer professional because I don't make enough money. I only make ninety five thousand dollars a year. So therefore, I'm automatically uh, non-exempt and they need to pay me overtime. And I say, well, probably, but they're just going to claim you're exempt under the administrative exemption. And. For whatever reason, computer programmers have a lot of difficulty understanding how the administrative exemption could possibly apply to computer programmers. And it's been a huge problem in the tech industry, and it, it causes a lot of litigation and contention inside the inside the sector in determining who is and who isn't exempt. And hopefully the Eicher case brings some clarity to this and, and finally resolves the issue that no Computer programming is not an administrative function. It's not along the same lines of a CFO or a controller or a purchaser for a company who's essentially doing administrative functions to help run the day-to-day process of the, the business or set management policies for the uh, for the business. I mean, these people just aren't – I mean, if you are advising in terms of management policies or something like that, you're an outside consultant from a um, – I don't want to say an outside consultant from something like Deloitte because Deloitte covers a whole bunch of stuff. They cover, you know, accounting, management, uh, consulting, as well as computer programming, database, network stuff. So it depends what you're doing. But if you're a high-level business consultant, uh, you're going to be non—you're going to be exempt under the administrative exemption. And there was a gray area in terms of whether you were exempt or not under the uh, administrative exemption if you were d- providing these uh, computer, uh, uh, you know, computer skills. Interestingly enough. And what we're going to get into in the second segment here is that the employee didn't go to an attorney first. He went to the labor board and a lot of people think, oh, well, the labor board is very pro employee. You're going to win at the labor board no matter what you say. Wrong. The labor board is not pro employee. In fact, you know, with the recent shift in not so recent shift in the administration, you know, the governor uh, and he makes these appointments and they hire the uh, deputy uh, labor commissioners. There's been a decided shift to be much more of an pro-employer bias at the uh, at the labor commission, but I'll get into what the issues are at the at the labor board and why I don't always like it. But in any case, uh, Iger brought his claim to the labor board, and the labor board ruled against him. They said you're exempt as an administrator, as an administrative employee, and you are not entitled to any overtime. So the, you know, even the labor board didn't, uh, didn't quite get all the nuances of this area of the law and they got it wrong. Fortunately, Iker appealed that and took it to, uh, basically what happens when you do an appeal from the labor board, we're going to talk about this a little bit later. It goes back and the whole thing starts all over. You go back to trial. At trial, he won and the judge determined that he was entitled to overtime. The employer then appealed that and the employer lost that as well. The, uh, uh, the Court of Appeals determined that he was indeed entitled to overtime. And basically, I don't want to get too much into it, but you know it, the court said that if you're not involved in setting management policies or affecting the general business operations of the company, then you're not going to be exempt as an administrative employee. Now, Previously, defense attorneys were always trying to say, if you did anything with general business operations, even just, you know, turning the crank of the business, that would be sufficient because you're affecting uh, general business operations. So, for instance, if you installed routers and configured uh, network uh, cables for the company, they would say, well, that's part of the general business operations of the company. And if you failed in your job duties, let's say you burnt out the router, you, you unplugged the power or you... You put the patch cable into the wrong uh, into the wrong slot. The the network for the company would go down. That would cost millions of dollars in lost revenue. And you know, since that's such a catastrophic thing, that's clearly affecting the general business operations of the company. And therefore, you're administratively exempt. And courts have said no. There's a big distinction between risk of loss and actual discretion and independent judgment in making these management policies and affecting the general business operations of the company. So that's where the Iker case came in, and you know I've, I've got some links to the actual decision up on my website and discussing it in a little bit more depth. If you're in this uh, sector, in, in the technology sector, but in any case, a very good case. Over time, I think be used to to put a lid on defense attorneys' uh, use of the administrative exemption inside the technology field. But I want to talk about the really important holding in uh, the Iker case, or the more important issue. And that is that, uh, you know, talking about how the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement works. Okay, so before we go on, I just do want to point out that uh, the Iker decision is a, a little bit complex, and I can't cover everything here. But if you go to uh, laborlawradio.com, you look at the uh, audio archive, I do have a link over there to uh, a blog I had put up discussing, it, and that links to the actual article if you want to read that. So uh, pretty interesting and as I said, the most interesting thing there is that Iker had brought his claim to the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement, commonly called the Labor Board. And I may use those uh, terms interchangeably. Labor Board is just sort of the you know common everyday term for it. The technical term for it is a Division of Labor Standards Enforcement, which is abbreviated DLSE. So if I refer to any one of those things, it's all uh, the same thing. And what that is is the Labor Board is sort of an informal administrative hearing in which you can bring grievances against your employer and get them resolved in what is supposed to be a simple and expeditious manner. Now, that's the theory of it. Whether it's it's simple, yes. Whether it's expeditious largely depends on which office you file in and what their case backlog is uh, at that time. I've seen cases take up to two years to process through the uh, the labor board. And in, in general, you would be done with your trial well before that if you had filed in civil court. A lot of times, uh, your case can be heard before the labor board in in a matter of uh, weeks or, or months, and uh, you probably won't get it hearing within a couple weeks, but you know, within a couple months, uh, depending on how, what their caseload is. But I do want to point out uh, a misconception about the labor board: the labor board is not the investigative arm. Of, you know the California's labor enforcement. That role is reserved for something called uh, the Bureau of Field Enforcement. So when you go lodge a complaint with the labor board, they are not going to run out to the employer, investigate all their timekeeping records, investigating all, all these practices at the uh, at the employer and trying to churn uh, tr- up other labor violations that they might be violating that is very rare that they would do that it would have to be referred over to the bureau of field enforcement and generally the bureau of field enforcement only targets certain you know known industries that have problems or certain things that they are are interested in investigating you know if it's a uh, uh, you know they've investigated a lot of car washes, uh, things with migrant workers, things generally that deal more with minimum wage or rampant problems inside an industry. That's what the Bureau of field enforcement is primarily interested in. So if you're a computer programmer making one hundred and ten thousand dollars a year and you bring your complaint to the uh, the labor board, it's highly unlikely that it's going to get referred over to the Bureau of field enforcement. And they're going to run out and investigate for all these uh, these labor violations. but, You never know. But there's this common misconception that taking your case to the labor board is going to, you know, drum up these, you know, armies of labor investigators that are going to go out to the employer. And that's simply not the case. In fact, the labor board is not even going to tell you about any of the other labor violations that may be happening against you personally. The labor board is not there to help you prosecute your claim. They are simply there to listen to you present evidence Listen to the employer present evidence and see if that is a violation of the law that entires you, you entitles you to some type of compensation. But they're not going to tell you, uh, for instance, you know, we didn't talk about Murphy versus Kenneth Cole. That was the meal break case. But in that case when he sued for overtime, they didn't even tell him about meal breaks and all these other penalties that he could get. It wasn't until later and uh, in the appeal process that an attorney got involved and told him, well, wait a second, you've got a ton of other claims here at the labor board. And we're going to talk about what those claims, other claims might be and, you know, why the labor board, you know, they, they can't tell you about it. They can't give you legal advice. You know, they're, they're just there to hear your, your claim. So the basics are, You know, you fill out a form, uh, you know, DLSE-1, which is a claim form where you list what you think they did wrong. They either didn't pay your wages upon termination or they didn't pay your vacation upon termination. They didn't pay you overtime. Uh, If you have an overtime claim, you're going to have to attach a spreadsheet that lists for each week how many hours you had worked during that week and what your rate of pay was for that week so that they can compute the number of hours worked. And that's just a spreadsheet that you have to do. It's pretty simple to uh, it's pretty simple to fill out. So once you've got uh, that, your, your claim goes to the DLSE and they schedule a conference. Now, they will send your employer a letter and the employer can, if they want, write back with an answer saying, you know, we never employed this guy. He never worked any overtime. We paid him all of his wages already. Or they can you know, write you a check or something like that. That happens sometimes in clear-cut violation. But the labor board sends you out a letter and says, you need to come in on, you know, such and such a day, August 15th or you know, whenever they schedule the day and both of you need to come into this conference. Generally, you can't change that day. You need to show up and rescheduling them is very, very difficult. Uh, You know, you can, you can try to do that. Some offices will allow it, but in a lot of cases you can just never get somebody on the phone and they'll just tell you flat out they will not reschedule your appointments. So whatever date you get, you better show up or they're going to dismiss your case. And then you have to start all that over at the beginning. So you show up at the conference. The conference is a lot like this mediation that I had discussed. Not nearly as fun. Mediation for attorneys, a bunch of attorneys yelling at each other and, you know, doing all sorts of crazy stuff because there's no judges there. There's no rules to to follow. But at the conference, much more civilized, um, pretty uh, pretty straightforward. You sort of give the basics of their claim and they sort of give the basics of their claim. And the hearing officer listens to it and tells you whether you you might have a case or not. They're not going to tell you whether it's a good one or a bad one. But if you come in there with something completely frivolous, they're just going to throw it out and not continue it over, you know, not carry it over to the next phase. Alternatively, um, you know, they might try to work out some type of compromise. The employer may say, well, maybe we owe him some overtime, but not that much. We're willing to pay him $5,000 if he walks away. And they can work out a, a compromise for your claim that way. So, that's just the the first conference. Now, making it through this conference isn't very difficult. In fact, when I represent employers, I advise them not to show up at the conference because it's a waste of time. And if they want to pay me to drive down to the conference and put in an appearance, that's fine. But it's largely a waste of everybody's time. I mean, the employer's time to show up at that conference. Most of the time it gets carried over to the hearing unless it's something completely frivolous. And if it is something completely frivolous, you don't actually have to show up at the conference. The, the uh person will listen to it and say, hey, you've got a completely frivolous claim. We're not going to carry this over for a hearing. So you know, on the employer's side, it's not always a good idea to, you know, it doesn't hurt to show up, but at the same time, it's just wasting a trip down to uh, down to the labor board. So if you're an employee and the employer doesn't show up, it doesn't really mean anything. It just means they've done these things before and they know the practicality of it. At the hearing, if they don't show up, then you almost get a default. It's not like in court. Now, in court, if you don't show up, you lose. Uh, but at the labor board, you still have to put on your case for the hearing. Uh, but if you don't show up, it's it's very difficult to win. <laughs> it's certainly difficult to win. And it's uh, very difficult not to get a, a judgment against you if you don't show up. If you're, the, if you're the employee, you must show up or they dismiss your case. So once you're through this conference, it's scheduled over for a hearing. Now the hearing is much like a judicial, uh, you know, judicial trial. It is a determinative event that is at the end of the hearing or shortly thereafter. You're going to get in a decision, and that's going to say either employee gets money or employee gets no money, and that is binding. Um, it can be enforced. Uh, you can enter a judgment against it. You can get the sheriff to go collect the money. Um, that is a final decision at the conference. No matter how much evidence you bring, no matter how great your case is, the hearing officer cannot award anything at the conference. No evidence is is admitted. There's no recording made of the proceedings. Um, You can't get a transcript of it. I mean, it's just an informal meeting. The hearing, they do record the uh, uh, the contents of the hearing. You can request a transcript of it. You have to order the tape and pay for that yourself. But you can get a, a transcript made. And whatever the hearing officer says is the final decision of the labor board. Now, you can appeal that, but uh, it is a final decision, and if you don't appeal it, then it can be entered as a judgment against the employer, and you can go collect that money. So, uh, you know, very, very different thing than the the conference, but that's essentially it. You go to the conference, you go to the hearing, and then you get your judgment. Now, that's sort of the the procedure there, and we're going to talk about why that's not always the best thing for the employee. So the biggest problem with taking something to the labor board is that you don't get what's known as discovery in a civil trial. You're allowed to request documents from the employer well in advance of trial. Uh, you know, despite what you see on TV with uh, you know Perry Mason and you know Shark you know, is a show I like to watch. Of course, it's completely unrealistic. That's not the way uh, the practice of law is. The modern practice of law is about fully preparing for trial both sides know what's going to be presented. You have to put on all your evidence and exchange it with the other side well in advance uh, of when the trial is going to take place. And you're really not able to surprise anybody unless they're really stupid and just lie on the stand and you can use it for impeachment purposes. And fortunately, people are stupid and uh, you get to uh, you know bring stuff up like that in trial. And that's why you do see some of these uh, you know surprises in trial, but it's only when somebody is is lying and you're using it to impeach them. I mean, for the vast majority of your core evidence, that is well known of in advance. That is not the case at the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement. You do have a right to subpoena people to show up and testify, and you do have a right to subpoena documents that is require people to bring documents to help support your claim. But they don't have to produce them until the day of the hearing. Now, that causes two problems. Uh, the first problem is that you don't know What's going to be in these documents? You can say, "I want you to produce all of my emails that I ever are sent while I work for that company," and uh, you know you might not remember everything that you sent. Or, "I want all the emails that the boss sent to my coworkers about me," uh, or all the emails that my boss sent to anybody. Um, you know, in, in, a, in a civil trial, you could probably get all that stuff. I mean, all the emails sent to everybody might be a bit broad, and you might want to narrow it down, but. You, you could get all the emails sent to and from you and things that relate to what hours you are working and things like that. Or if it's a sexual harassment uh, claim or something like that, you know, you don't bring sexual harassment stuff to the labor board. So we won't talk about that, um, you know, but for any, anything else, you have a right to get this stuff in advance. The labor board, all they have to do is bring it to the hearing. So you don't know what you're going to get. Most importantly, chances are they're not going to bring anything. And now in court. If they don't produce the documents when you request, you go to the judge. The judge gives an order to slap their attorneys with sanctions. They have to pay you money. You know, it's a, it's a bad thing. You don't want to get into discovery disputes in civil court. It's just, you know, like two kids fighting back and forth. And judges don't like it. And a lot of attorneys just don't engage it. And it's just not professional conduct. But at the labor board, the attorneys can simply say, well, I, I couldn't understand what he said when all emails relating to the number of hours that I worked. I've got no idea what that might mean or all emails from me to my boss. We couldn't find those in the system or it was too burdensome for us to extract them from the system. So we decided not to produce them. And in most cases, you can complain to the hearing officer and he kind of gives you a funny look. Well, there's not much I can do about it at this point. I'm not going to, you, you know, you might be able to continue the trial over to the next period, which will be six months later or something like that. And the hearing officer can order him to produce it. But I've never seen that happen. Uh, they they just don't get involved with it. And they sort of expect you to show up with all your own evidence. So if you need stuff back from the employer, you know, you're not going to have a really good way of getting it through the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement. They just really don't give you Um, a very good uh, idea of what's going to happen so what happens when you show up is that and when you go to the labor board you need to prepare to be ambushed that is what's going to happen to you they don't have to produce their evidence to you so you don't know what they're going to bring i mean they may be bringing five witnesses or ten witnesses they may have videotapes of you at work Uh, Either you know staying late or leaving early or whatever it is, you're not going to know any of that until the day of the uh, the hearing. Not only that, but you're also not going to know what types of defenses they're going to come up with. So a lot of people, like you know, we're talking about computer programmers, they go in all prepared to just completely destroy their defense for the computer professional exemption, and the defense attorney gets up and says, "Well, that's fine, but we're relying solely on the administrative exemption." So complete ambush, and you're not prepared for it, and unfortunately. The rules there simply don't uh, don't allow for it. But uh, it's time to take a break. I'm going to pick up on the other side talking about the types of claims that the labor board doesn't tell you about, and you can't even bring some of them at uh, the labor board. So pretty interesting. Stay tuned, and we'll come, uh, come right back on the other side. Thanks.